0: You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's second lesson of the Rejection module, Roots and Fruits of Rejection, Philip Edwards will take us to the book of beginnings to reveal the roots of rejection and the fruit it bears in our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules, register for future modules, And see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching.
1: Let's just pray then before we start this evening. Heavenly Father we are pleased to come again and present ourselves before you to have you minister into our hearts and lives. Lord this is a a serious problem that we're dealing with uh, it's affecting the church as we look around us and uh, father we want to know the truth of your word and we want to know how we can walk in liberty and freedom as we apply the scriptures to our lives lord just yes, be with us this evening and uh, speak to us into our hearts by the holy spirit we pray in jesus name amen amen, amen want to look first at the source uh, of rejection, how it all starts, and we'll be looking at that passage in Genesis chapter one, where we uh, examine what happened at the very beginning with Adam and Eve and and Cain and Abel, and how rejection uh, broke in there. Before we go there though, uh, most people are usually very aware of problems that they have. They're aware of their fears, They're aware if they're unhappy. Uh, They are aware that they are perhaps depressed. Uh, They are aware of any dysfunction that they might have. The trouble is, though, that a lot of people thinking, that's me, that's what I'm like. It's just natural. I've always been like that. And uh, my mother was like that, or I'm like that. So we just accept the way that we are. What they're often not aware of is that this problem that they might have entered when they were a child. And this thing has been with them so long they really do think it's part of them. But the reality is that Christ has come to set us free. He's come to deliver us and heal us and restore us and make us whole and make us like him. Those problems that came in in childhood are probably what we would call the stock of trade of the psychotherapist. Um, Is it wrong or right to see the psychiatrist and to ask him questions? Well, uh, what else can people do? They want to discover what's wrong with them. And so that's what they do. They hope that these people will have some answers to their questions. I think as Christians, we don't have to do that If we go to the Word of God, the Word of God can be a good psychiatrist to us. He can explain things very clearly to us. And of course, by the work of the Holy Spirit, He can open things up and teach us. Of course, people who aren't Christians don't have that. So I'm all for whatever help they can get to get free. We want to see people free. We want to see people enjoying their life, Christian or non-Christian. So if we, were to visit a psychiatrist because what he would do in time I'm sure he would actually take us back to the things of our childhood he would get us to look at things to explain things what was going on when we were growing up in those formative years how how were we adjusting to things did we come from a settled home or was it a broken home what were our parents like what sort of traumas did we go through or problems He would go back to the beginning We have to go back to the beginning often to discover what God thinks about certain things. And of course, the Book of Beginnings is Genesis. It is the Book of Beginnings. It starts with, in the beginning, and that's how we end up getting the name of the book. It it deals with the origins of nearly all of the Bible themes. So any great theme that you want to study in Scripture, you'll find its origin there. And you start your study there and you move away from that position. It deals with this topic as well. And it also deals with the history of the world and how it all started and what went so terribly wrong and how many problems right at the beginning just broke into this world. In the early chapters of Genesis, we're going to read the origins of rejection. How it all started. We said last week that, um, of course, Christianity is built around this whole theme, really, of loving other people. I said, if you took love out of Christianity, you really haven't got Christianity. It it wouldn't work. It can't work. Uh, We said that God so loved. And so everything is built around this idea that we walk and live in a loving environment. Let's go then to the origins, uh, where it all started. In order for roots to grow, this week we've called it Roots and Fruits, so we're going to look at the roots of things and then uh, what fruit it bears in its life. In order for roots to grow, something has to be planted, it's obvious, and then the surrounding conditions have to be right. And if they are, we know that this... Uh, whatever the root is, whatever the seed is, it will produce again and again and again. Now, if that's a good seed and it's good fruit that it's producing, that's wonderful. But if it's a bad seed and it's producing bad fruit, we've got problems. And it's no good just picking the bad fruit off the tree. We have to deal with the root. We have to deal with the root to stop it producing that fruit over and over again. So let's go then to the Garden of Eden, where all of this started. There was tremendous harmony at first. It couldn't have been better, could it? Uh, God had created this couple. They loved each other. There was innocence between them. They were just prospering. Uh, Everything was smooth between them husband and wife, as it were, between God and them. They were fulfilled as a couple in the garden. We don't know how long this went on for. We're not sure. It could have lasted quite a number of years. They were totally affirmed and uh, accepted in their identity. They knew who they were in relationship to one another and in relationship to God. They felt secure in that. They had their role to play. They were secure in what they were meant to do. God made it clear to them, this is what you're meant to do. And they, they enjoyed what it is that God gave them. They had a true sense of worth and belonging. They lived in the garden and they met daily with God. It's almost like if you look at it and examine it, it's like a picture of what heaven's going to be. It's all gone terribly wrong from the beginning, but it will all be put right in the end. But in the meanwhile, we have to live in this very troubled, chaotic world that we find ourselves in. So if all the good you see when you look in the Garden of Eden is the good you'll see in paradise, in the world to come. It was here in this... uh, place of harmony that God came and he commissioned Adam and Eve. He gave them a work to do. I'm going to read it to you. It's found in Genesis 1, uh, 28 and 30. And as I read it, you see how the words just capture the whole mood of the atmosphere, of where they were, how blessed they were, how secure they were in this situation. It says this, uh, Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them and he said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground then God said I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it they will be your food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and to all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant a food. And it is so. It's perfect, isn't it? He's made it very carefully, he's made it perfectly. He says to them, These are the things you've got to do. You're to be fruitful. You're just to multiply and to grow and to grow. Because the plan of God is, it wouldn't have no end. It would go on. This is how it planned to be. They didn't have death in them. They would have lived eternally. They were to subdue. And they were to rule. That gives us a little bit of a hint that there was something to subdue and something to rule over. Because we know as we read on that Satan is not far away. And he has access to this planet. And so together, as they, they live in harmony in this beautiful place, they know they will have an enemy to deal with, to, to subdue, really, and to rule over him as well. He gave them everything that they required. He gave them satisfaction and fulfillment every day. It was in this uh fantastic location as it were that satan came to tempt them i said last week as i was speaking about love and i said oh and there was satan it's like oh philip he's always got to pop up he always pops up and because we haven't read into the two chapters of genesis and there he is he's on the scene already he's appearing you know because I've spoken about the spiritual warfare and deliverance, people say, well, do you have to keep talking about the devil? Well, I wish the Bible didn't, but it does. And it does it all the time, and it does it very quickly. And so it would almost say, well, this this is this wonderful world, but don't forget this, don't forget this. And so they came into a world that their job was to subdue and to rule over, and really what they had to subdue was this enemy. He didn't only give them a commission, but he gave them some rules. I don't like to think of the rules he gave us as commands. I suppose they were commands, really, but that always seems a bit of a harsh word to me. It's it's sort of like, I command you to do this. I'd rather think of the things that Jesus told them to do to be rules. Rules that would define their relationship. And we've looked at this before. If you're going to live with me, these need to be the rules by which we live. Every relationship needs some rules. We need to know the boundaries. And so he gave them certain boundaries. He said to them, you can eat anything in this garden, but don't eat from that tree. Satan, when he tempted them, he challenged them, didn't he? very challenging words he challenged their very role what they were supposed to do he challenged their identity who are you Uh, he challenged their relationship they had with the father it says in genesis 3 and i'll read these seven verses to you it's the picture of where he comes Where the enemy comes to undermine this relationship they had, to to challenge their very identity, to challenge their very purpose, to challenge the comfort that they found themselves in, the security they were in. Chapter 3 then. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden. You see, by the question, he's undermining their secure position in God. They were fine in their relationship. It was fine. But he comes to undermine that security. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You'll not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves." This relationship that they had was undermined by Satan. He came to sow seeds that would cause them to reject, to reject each other and to reject God himself. He spoke about expectations they should really have and God was somehow deceiving them from what was potentially possible. Of course, that was nonsense, wasn't it? God was giving them the best. He wasn't deceiving them about anything. And then he distorted their image of themselves as children of God. There's something very subtle in this. I'll just point this out. Um, I mean, it all gets a little bit technical, but you'll see it because it's quite simply pointed there. In the first verse, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. The Lord God... That term, the Lord is a covenant term. Because God was in covenant with Adam and Eve, he said, my name is the Lord. It's a covenant name. We looked at this when we were studying the covenants. My name is Yahweh. My name is Jehovah. We had that. Here it's always written, the Lord, the Lord. And so Adam and Eve only knew the Lord as the Lord. That was his name. He was, he was their friend he was loving them in a covenant relationship but when satan comes he doesn't call in the lord does he you noticed it says uh, he said to the woman did god really say oh why is that different every time you read a different name for the lord it is important now you might be bothered to dig around or you might not Satan wasn't in a covenant relationship. None of the angels were in a covenant relationship. God was only in a covenant relationship with men and women. They didn't know him, the angels or the archa- They They didn't know him as the Lord. They knew him as God, Elohim, the almighty God, the creator, God and so he comes and he says to her did god really say she should have said who are you talking about who's god okay because she didn't know him as god it goes on to say there the woman said to the serpent we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden And then what does she call him? She says, but God said, oh dear. See, he had come into a relationship with them as the Lord, the covenant Lord who cares for you. And she's picked up what Satan has said, and she is now referring to him as God. She's broken that covenant relationship with him by the very words that come out of her mouth. She's calling him God. The first rejection that you ever read about in the Bible is right there. She is rejecting God. She is rejecting the covenant God, the covenant Lord who wants this intimate relationship with her. And she's just picked up what Satan has called him and called him God. God knew that. He knew exactly where this was going when he listened to her speech when you listen to people speak you hear rejection in their words you hear it the very way that they talk you can pick it up you can sense what's going on there people might accuse somebody that you've known is doing something wrong. I was trying to think how this would work out. Say someone went to my wife, and we're in a covenant relationship, and they said, oh, we've heard that Philip has done this, this, and this. She would say, no, he never did that. How can you be so sure? Because I know him. We're in a covenant relationship, Uh, I don't know where you heard he did this, but he didn't do that. It's not possible. See, she should have said to Satan, Oh, no, no, what you're saying to me is not possible because I'm in covenant relationship with my Lord. But she listened to him and she believed what he said. Now, imagine in a marriage situation where somebody would go and accuse uh, in this situation myself... And then, and then she believes it. Any covenant relationship that we had would be severely damaged and hurt. And so that's what she did, you see. She allowed that to happen. And just as in the natural we would say, oh, she's now rejecting her husband, she is rejecting God. He came and he destroyed the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God, why was she so quick to jump on that and accept that? Seems strange, doesn't it? Knowing nothing else except the security and the the warmth and everything that was there, she so quickly jumped on that. We're quite weak people, aren't we? We're quite we're not strong, really. And not only damaged their relationship with God, Satan damaged their relationship with each other. They were perfect, weren't they? They were innocent. I mean, it talks about being naked and everything, but we know that's about innocence and openness and a great... The figs, the fig leaves, you see, it wasn't only to cover themselves in front of God, it was also to, to cover themselves from each other. It was broken. The fig leaves speak about the brokenness that there was in the relationship, and now everyone's ashamed of everyone in this relationship. Rejection is there, you see, right at the very heart of it, right in the first few chapters. God has given us the right to choose, you see. Your choices are really important. Some choices are more important than others. But when you think about it, every choice you make is important. Every choice either takes you forward or it takes you back. You can't stand still. You move forward or you move back by your choices. They decided to reach out for more. He was able, through that short conversation, to deceive them in thinking there was more, and they wanted the more. There was nothing more. Do you think God is holding out on you? see, if you do, if you think you should have something that you haven't got, but somebody else has got, and you can't have it, you will think that God is holding out on you. And you will reject God just like she did see God can't be more loving and gracious and caring and providing for you it's impossible we have to get how how much God loves us so we can walk in a security when others do reject us we turn away from that and we just turn to a God and we know he desperately desperately loves us that's part of the healing Because you will get rejected. We live in a world where people reject one another all the time. But our security isn't found in the relationship we have with one another. We want good relationship, but it's secure in our relationship with God. You can think what you like about me and say what you like and gossip as much as you like. But I'm secure in my relationship with God my best friend in the whole universe is jesus i can't improve on that can i he said i call you my friend he's my friend so god is my father and jesus is my friend so if you don't like me well i'm not trying to make it so you don't like me but it doesn't really matter not at the end it doesn't of course you want to get on with everyone and you want to relate good relationships but I won't fall apart. If you go off me, I won't. My security, you see, is in him. She threw that away. Adam and Eve, they threw that away. How ridiculous can you be? See, God has given us the right to decide issues. We choose. We make choices in life. We have the ability to make right and wrong. Choices. He allows that to happen. Adam and Eve obviously made the wrong choice. It was wrong. They were deceived. They disobeyed. They rebelled. And therefore, they rejected God Himself. Terrible, terrible thing to do. They chose rejection. And the damage was done. God enters the garden and Adam and Eve are hiding. Why are they hiding? Because Not because they're naked. They've rejected God. That's why they're hiding. They don't want to meet up with him. This one that they've rejected, the one that they've turned their back on, that's why they're hiding in the garden. They don't want to face him. God has this dialogue with them. He basically says, why did you do that? Was there anything wrong with our relationship? Why did you do that? And because neither of them will take responsibility. They sort of try and put it on the other one. No, no, we have to face up to... They both made the decision. They both rejected God. They both looked for something else. They weren't content with what they had. God had made them both accountable, you see. They were both accountable. It wasn't Adam's responsibility and somehow he had let his wife down. Oh no. It said God blessed them and said to them... He didn't say to Adam now, say, pass this on to your wife. So she, No, no, none of that nonsense. Okay, it wasn't like that. He spoke to them. He made them accountable. They were stood equal before him. There was no inequality between the two. There's no inequality now between husband and wife. There might be different roles because of different strengths and different giftings. But husband and wife are equal. They always have been in the, in the sight of God. Men and women are equal in the sight of God. They just have different roles. They had lost their spiritual, their mental, their emotional, physical harmony. It had all gone. It was shattered by the decision they made. They would lost that relationship as I said, with God and with each other, because they had rejected God, God has no alternative but to reject them. You say, that's a bit harsh. Why couldn't he just say, oh, it don't matter. They're only humans. God can't do that. He can't do that with sin. He knows if he lets that slip, it's gonna get worse and worse and worse. So God always has to judge sin. Judging sin is not a bad thing. It's not a harsh thing. Judging sin is an act of love. I've got to stop this now before it gets ten times worse. If we don't deal with these things, it will. So every action of God's judgment is a judgment of love. They were cursed as a result of what they did. God took no pleasure in doing this at all. It says regarding the flood, he took no pleasure in doing that. God doesn't take pleasure in chastising us ever. He doesn't enjoy it for one minute. He only does it for our good. They lost their spirituality. They died. Their connection with God was severed. This wonderful relationship had gone. They had lost the authority to subdue the earth, because now the enemy was in, and he was subduing them. They'd lost it. They'd lost so much by rejecting God. see, when we reject or we are rejected, so much damage is done. This clearly shows the damage that was done. They lost their inheritance. They were to live forever. Death entered into them. Satan took every advantage possible once he was in that position and he put so much negative things into Adam and Eve and one of them was this thing of rejection. Right there, we see it in the early chapters. The effect in them, we see then, is passed on to their children that's what their children are now inheriting imagine if they stayed in this perfect state the children would have only inherited all of those good things but now all the bad that is coming into their lives they're passing it on to their children and it's been passed on from generation to generation through our children Rejection then quickly became a root in their lives. I said to you last week, didn't I? To destroy love, we use rejection. The enemy uses rejection to destroy the love that's there. And so we see this root entering into them. Adam and Eve were isolated, they were lonely they were now damaged remember they were driven from the garden driven from the very presence of God they felt rejected you must to be in harmony with God and then for God to send you from his presence it must be awful to know that you're in this wonderful relationship with God and now you're in this awful relationship with this demonic evil thing, Satan. They must have felt terrible, awful, just so dark every day. Every morning they would wake depressed with the heaviness upon them. They'd lost their connection and they'd got this other one that's so... Awful! We know when people get saved they step away from this darkness to embrace God and they they're so excited with this new relationship they found they went the other way. They had it and moved away from it. Awful! Apparently even the animals turned against them and the ground turned against them. It was all against them. Nothing was easy from that moment onwards because of this severed, broken relationship. The boys, Cain and Abel, they were born into this. Born into this broken family. The boys were different, weren't they? Quite different. We read about them in 1 John 2 and 12. It says this. It says, Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Sounds like they were like chalk and cheese, these two boys. How come Cain turned out like this? See, the rejection in Adam and Eve, it would have been passed on to their children. But what happened in Cain was 10 times, 100 times worse than whatever happened to Abel. I don't know why this is. There are possibly some suggestions. Remember when God spoke to Adam and Eve and he said, you will have a child or your seed will crush Satan's head. Satan will bite his heel but your seed, your offspring, will crush his head. I wonder if, if Satan thought, hmm, her seed, her child, I really have to attack these children, because it could be him thinking, one of them will crush my head. We don't know. Also, when it comes to the first son, as we read in the Old Testament, he had double honour. He was special. He was dedicated to the Lord, as it were. And so his attack would be on the one that would probably be the most committed, the most dedicated. And so it appears that his attack is more severe on him. Or it could have been just his personality, his giftings, who he was, opened him up to becoming, uh, feeling more rejected or, we don't know. We just know that the New Testament says they were different. So different, one is described as evil and the other is described as righteous. The whole human race from Adam and Eve were born into sin. We were born into sin. And it starts with these two. And we see the rejection already in these two. It came one day that they should make a sin offering to God. And so their father, uh, Adam, had taught them about these things. Adam was like the king and the priest. You could say... He was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He held both offices. No one else could be the king apart from Adam. And he was definitely the priest because no one else could be the priest. And he would have taught these boys what was necessary. He would have said, listen, you have to make sacrifices to God. There will be times and seasons and days when you need to do this. We don't know when they did it, how often they did it, but we see that they would have to do it. So they come and they bring their offerings to God. We see that Abel brings a lamb. The lamb he has sacrificed, and the blood of the lamb is on his hands. And we see that Cain, he grows crops in the field and he harvests the crops and he brings them to the Lord. God accepts one and rejects the other. It's there again. This boy that was suffering so much from this rejection, he goes to God with the offering that he shouldn't have brought. Why did he do that? His father told him clearly what he would have to do. You have to to shed blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no faith and there is no forgiveness of sin. So why should he do things that would cause God to reject him? When I see people who, who have rejection, they do things that make people reject them even more. I think, why are you doing that? Why is that? He knew he had to bring a lamb. Why didn't he just do it? He brings, he brings what he's done. Could it be that he just wanted God to accept what he had done? You see? He wanted God to affirm his efforts and his work. See April did nothing, did he? He just brought this land that God produced and God reared, and God did it all i mean he didn't I mean he chewed the grass and drank the water that God provided he didn't do anything, but he knew from his father he had to do that and shed the blood. but this Cain is saying, Look God, look what i've done." Oh. Was he really worshipping himself and not God? When people boast about what they've done, are they looking for their own praise and worship? Hmm. I think so. Abel offered to God what God had done. There was no, look at me, look how good I am. Uh, Here God, this is what you've done. Abel offered, he offered by faith. His father had said, you do this and you will be forgiven. And he did it in faith. He didn't know if God would forgive him. His father told him well and he believed it. And so he walked forward in faith. Cain offered him works, didn't he? Look what I've done with my hands, looking for the affirmation of God. They knew without the shedding of blood there would be no forgiveness of sin and no faith in their offering. Cain offered because he wanted acceptance and affirmation. Abel offered in response to God. God makes it clear that Abel is acceptable because his gift is acceptable. But Cain, you're not acceptable because your gift is not acceptable. What can you bring to God? You bring Jesus with his blood on your hands and on Sunday we present the Lord Jesus. We've done nothing, have we? God sent him. God crucified him. We simply believed in him and offered him back on our behalf. And God says, I accept that. Therefore, I accept you. Isn't that wonderful? You know. Sometimes we want to say to God how well we've done or how good we are. and we are, you know. No, no, no. It's, it's what your son has done. It's only what your son has done. Cain's angry. Because God has rejected him. He's angry. His anger is probably a mixture of depression and self-pity. Something like that. This caused him to be rebellious. Cain was angry not only with God, but he was angry with his brother. (laughs) God comes to him full of mercy, full of compassion. He says to him in Genesis 4, 6 and 7, he said, why? Why are you doing this? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? The issue revolves around the word if. If we're obedient, we will be accepted. All he had to do was what his father had told him to do, and God would have loved them and accepted them both, but but he doesn't, so he has to reject one and only love the other. If we're disobedient to God, we will always experience the rejection of God for our own good. We must feel it. We must feel that we've offended our God. Okay. Now, He always loves us and He always saves us, but there is something of experiencing His rejection that is a blessing to us. This is a critical point now in the whole story. He warns Cain, He says this in 4 and 7. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. We're shown here what is happening in the spiritual realm. He says you have a chance. You've got some time left, Cain. You've got time to get it right. Come on, get it right now. What you did was wrong, but get it right, because I don't want to reject you. I want to love you. He said, sin, sin is waiting at the door. Did he mean Satan was waiting at the door? Hmm. Maybe sin is a personality that seeks to enter in. Sin is at the door of your heart, You're in a serious situation, Cain. You need to deal with this now. You have time. My grace is upon you. Do something about it. Cain, you have a personal responsibility. You can't blame everybody else. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame your brother. You can't blame me. You're responsible. Come on. You must master it. If you don't, it'll master you. If he chooses God's way, God's grace is there. His grace is always there. Cain took no notice. He deceived Abel. He enticed him into the field, remember? And killed him. the rejection that he experienced the rejection that was in his heart it caused him to do this it caused him he vented his hatred and his anger on his brother cain became his own victim see people who act in a way to cause others to reject them they're their own victims Sometimes I think what is happening is inside people who act like this, they have a spirit of rejection. And the spirit wants to gratify itself within the person. So it causes that person to do things that others will reject them. Now the person feels awful because he's being or she's being rejected, but the spirit inside goes, "Mm, I love that rejection. (laughs) isn't it weird he's gratifying himself see that's what he is he's a spirit of rejection that is gratified because he is being rejected he is rejecting and being rejected and that's what he likes just as a spirit of anger would cause a person to be angry and as that person is angry the spirit's going "Mm, i love this anger So it is with rejection. Cain became his own victim. He had rejected God and his ways. Therefore he became rejected by God. All of his own making, from beginning to end. Poor boy. scripture says he was A marked man after that. He was marked. He was the one who killed his brother. He was the one whom God had rejected. It says in the scriptures, he became a restless wanderer. Rejection is tied to see your identity and your image. Your identity... Is who you are in God. As I said before, I'm a child of God. That's my identity. You could say, well, you're a successful father. You're a good husband. Well, I'm only talking for myself. Okay. Or you could say, well, no, you you know, you've been a good pastor, or you were a good school teacher, or you were a good this, or a good that, or a good that. Yeah, yeah. But that's not my identity. My identity is, I'm a child of God. Of course, I want to do everything I do well, as Christians should. But my identity is not in what I do well. Humility is a strange thing. It makes you feel all the time that you haven't been good enough. Do you understand me? It's quite cruel, isn't it, humility? Humility. the opposite is being proud and arrogant and see how good I am. So because Christianity doesn't let us do that, we walk in humility and we constantly think, I'm not good enough. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. I can't get beyond that. But I've realised I'm not meant to get beyond it. I'm not meant to. I don't know what people think of my teaching. They say nice things, but I think it's awful most of the time. You say, you're ridiculous. But that's humility, you see. The alternative to walking in in humility is to walk in pride and arrogance. So this is what it is then. I accept it. It's never good enough. Now I can just about bear watching myself on the screen uh, but some people can't even do that because, thank God, they've got humility. So you just got to get on with it, thinking it's never good enough. It's never good enough. But see, one day we'll step away from this world and we'll go back to what it was like. We will feel secure and it'll be wonderful. All this stuff that we struggle under. It will be lifted from us. Rejection ties you into this image of who you are all the time. Disconnected from God, he strives to find a new identity. He he goes out, doesn't he? He leaves that place where he is to discover this new identity. But there isn't a new identity The only identity that people should have is the one they have in God. You will always be striving. Even when you're successful at something, that's only for a season. And then it goes, and then you're striving to find a new identity. Who I am. My image, who I am. He became, it says, a restless wanderer. Never finding fulfilment. In who he was we can't outside of Christ it's not possible something was driving him all the time in rejecting God God had rejected him he can't find peace this makes him restless a restless person is a driven person and he's never satisfied never Your satisfaction comes from your relationship only with God himself. And if you're seeking it somewhere else, no. No. The restless person, then, never satisfied. This is the source of rejection. This describes those outside of Christ. People are searching out there. Now, they they don't tell you they are. They say they found something, but they haven't. It's elusive. Whatever it is, whatever they're putting their money into or the time or energy or effort, they're they're hoping to find something that will bring this satisfaction, but it doesn't exist. And I've realized that there are many Christians that aren't satisfied as well. Because they don't want the Lordship of Jesus Christ on their life. They want to be born again, but they want to be the Lord of their lives. And so they'll never be satisfied as Christians. Never. It doesn't work. This, this then, that drives us is the source of self-rejection. We reject ourselves. Cain's cry of self-pity, we read it there. He says, this punishment is too much for me to bear. That's what it says in scripture. Cain continues to blame God. He says, you're driving me from my very land. He's blaming God. And then he says, whoever finds me will kill me. He's driven by fear, you see. Rejection is a terrible terrible thing was birthed in the first three chapters it's a serious theme of scripture and of our lives we'll have our break there we'll come back after the break thank you okay welcome back what i would like to do at the start of this session um i said last week we would invite anyone who felt they could Uh, share and uh, encourage in testimony or something of their experience of perhaps being in rejection and coming out of it and I think it's always good to hear testimony so if there is anyone uh, the floor is open and so please yes come forward that's it I'll just I'll fit this to you and then it's nice and clear excuse me I'll just
2: Thank you. Right, yes. Rejection. Um, It's just been so interesting because um, I came from a family of five children um, and I don't want to blame parents or anything, but actually I don't know any perfect parents. Does anybody know any perfect parents? (laughs) Uh, But my parents, my dad was fostered. and my mother um, was an only child and they, when they got married uh, my father went off to war really quite quickly after they got married um, and uh, he was gone actually for six years in war so I would assume my mother felt really quite rejected that my father wasn't around just on leave the odd time for the beginning of their marriage but um, anyway I was the fourth girl and um, I was always told that, you know, they wanted a boy, basically. Um, from, I think, the second child, they wanted a boy. And it was, it was often said to me, but I didn't kind of feel rejected particularly. I just thought that's how it was. You know, that's, that was the family I was in. Um, but the boy, my brother arrived after me and, and I loved him. He was lovely. But um, I had uh, three older sisters and um, I was just a little bit, I think I kind of felt a bit bullied really but uh, they used to call me Orphan Annie because I was very plain apparently as a child and I remember I still think of myself as Orphan Annie, I don't know, just one of those things and I was also called the Black Sheep of the family, which um, again you know we remember later on don't we but in actual fact I'm really quite pleased I was because I'm a born-again Christian, (laughs) so that's a plus. Um, We, in our family as well, I was one of five. Um, My father was a local builder and decorator Um, and uh, we had to do the 11 plus in those days. And again, um, being one of five, two passed the 11 plus and three of us didn't. And again, if you didn't pass the 11 plus, or again, for my situation, Um, You went to work basically, so you went to work when you were 15 and actually I probably would have liked to have stayed on at school, but again it was just how it was. So anyway, that's a little bit of my life story. Thank you.
1: Lovely. Thank you. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Any others? For a little bit of time. Okay, Anne. Yes, please. Put that on you. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay. Nope. Turn that round the other way. You're best on. That's it. Thank you. Okay. Uh oh.
3: Well, having said I wasn't coming up, here I am, so there you go. Um, (laughs) Help me here, Lord. Um, When I was a child, I didn't have uh, an easy life. Uh, That's probably the understatement as a child. I was the eldest of four children, and um, something happened to me quite badly when I was a small child. Uh, My father... Um, didn't believe it and uh, it totally impacted on our relationship for the rest of my life and I uh, can honestly say I've never known love from my father um, bless his soul and uh, so I grew up with a skewed view of, of, of love in that sense and um, rejection was a massive thing um, I'm getting emotional now because I'm just because my dad's not around. <laughs> um, and yes, so I grew up and uh, and I just felt words that were spoken over me as a child, like you'll never amount to anything. You should have been drowned at birth. Um, comments like that um, don't fare too well in a child. <laughs> and but I grew up. Um, with all of that, I start at work. Uh, I wasn't a Christian at the time. And um, by the end of my career, um, for somebody that wasn't going to amount to anything, I was a manager of 30 managers. I had a budget of five million, um, the life we were saying earlier, but even that wasn't, wasn't enough. Um, but then when I found Christ, I'd like to say that made everything right, but it didn't, because having had a skewed view of life with a father, I couldn't face my father in heaven with that love, having not experienced it with my father on earth, if that makes any sense to anybody. So if, um, for me, it was a real barrier for, for quite some time to work through that, and um, it was a question of something happened to me in 2006 when I was in KwaZulu-Natal and I'd spoken to a group of women that something was released in me and I knew then that I was no longer a victim. I was not going to live my life as, as a victim uh, and, and and I didn't. Um, but uh, I'd like to say, yes, everything was smooth running after that but it wasn't, but it wasn't until... I actually did the Freedom in Christ appointment and I laid down everything. Um, and the hardest thing is forgiveness. Well, it was for me the hardest thing to forgive a, a, a lifetime of, of abuse and, um, and silly little things, you know, like not getting birthday presents or things like that. And uh, to lay everything down was... Um, well, it was time consuming. It took a long time to work through all of that. Um, but, you know, God so blessed me and um, it's helped me with other people. And uh, the greatest thing is, you know, not to carry those negative tags around. I carry those negative tags for more than half my life and I've spent the latter half of my life trying to keep throwing the tags away when they try to cling back to me again because that's what the enemy does you know tries to make you what you were not what you are and what we are is children of God so any tags shame anything at all whatever it is they're gone and they're all gone thanks to him and that's the only reason I've come forward to to say that thank you
1: Thank you. Both those testimonies, they they deal with what I would call the roots of rejection, and that's what have been talking about this evening, how in our formative years, due to our, the environment in which we grow up in, uh, it's damaged. It's, it's painful, it's hurt. And of course, as we grow up, the roots are there. And then we, we develop as we do in life, twisted, broken, as it were. And then we just need the, the saving grace of God to come and to, uh, to move in our lives. Often we need to be delivered of things uh, because if we've been wounded for such a long time, it's like a gaping wound that the enemy takes full advantage of and uh, yeah, cripples us. I want to look at the roots. Um, I want to talk about three areas regarding the roots of rejection. Uh, these roots that are in our lives, they, they grow into strong trees really. And unless we get the ministry that we need, um, We're gonna find ourselves um, hampered, really, throughout our Christian life. Uh, There are three uh, names we can give to these, because I think they've also opened the door for spirits to come in and dominate our lives. The first root or root system that I wanna talk about is that root of rebellion. It's something that we saw in this story of Cain and Abel that he grew up to be really, really rebellious. We're gonna see that with rejection, we'll grow into three types of people. It is the same problem, rebellion, but based on who we are, we grow into one of these three types, as it were. If you reject a person and the root within them is a rebellious root, as you reject them, they become very aggressive. Uh, it's their way of reacting against being rejected. And it's usually aimed at the person who is showing them the rejection, hatred towards parents or hatred towards people who have, who have rejected them. And of course, as I said in the first talk, Uh, when we act like this then we tend to be rejected more and it's almost like a vicious thing that's going on. Uh, You're rejected so you're angry and you fight back and then you get more rejection and more and more people reject you. As I say it's often this rejection is displayed through anger or arrogance or criticism. Often it's um, a person will hold it in themselves but it's all going on in the inside as they're being rejected. This anger is there. And because what's going to happen? They're going to erupt. They're going to. It's all going to come out, as it were. And anyone who's around them and also themselves, they're going to be really damaged by what happens. Because they're so angry on the inside. Often these people hurt themselves because of the rejection and the way they're going to react to it. They hate themselves and they might physically hurt themselves because they're so angry. It's the only way they know how to deal with the rejection that's there. The second type of person who is rejected, he doesn't rebel or become angry or critical or fight. He, he turns it in on himself and so he becomes almost crippled on the inside. He lives with this pain within him. He's not going to burst out, he's not going to be angry, he's not going to react in that way. It's very dangerous because it can lead, well, definitely to thoughts of suicide because life becomes so difficult, miserable. Hopeless. It might even attempt suicide. It might be that you don't think about people committing suicide. It's not much you thought about. I just looked into some statistics here. It's quite frightening. These are statistics from 2019 in the UK. These were registered suicides. 5,691 in the UK in 2019 that is 19 suicides or uh, 18 suicides sorry a day a day i mean it, it's a staggering number when you think 18 people have killed themselves today and tomorrow another 18 people will kill themselves because of what's going on on the inside of them for men under 45 it's the biggest killer amongst men. <laughs> you think, no, surely not. There must be things that you know outstrip that. Apparently not. It's a serious matter, you see. It's usually because things turn in on them and life becomes more bearable dead than alive. If a person rejects themselves and I'm applying this to Christians, they'll reject God. They'll blame God. And their rejection of themselves, they'll reject God. The third sort of tree is that of self-protection, or what I would call the fear of rejection. So we have people who fight and rebel against being rejected. We have people, when they're rejected, who just close in on themselves. and. Uh, escaping is the only way. The third one is this fear of rejection. Probably with rejection, fear is always around the corner. Whichever of these uh, three root systems we're thinking of. The fear of additional hurt. The fear of today it's going to happen again the fear of never getting released from this situation, the fear that you're stuck in it. There's no defense barriers. Although you put them up, the rejection keeps coming and you tend to draw back from life. You don't trust anyone. You don't, not even if people come towards you with love and acceptance, because you are fearful that they won't always be like this and they'll reject you and then you won't be able to cope with that again. You just fear it so completely. You close off all those inner feelings and just get on with life. And of course you become a shell of a person. You're not real. You're not the real person. You're not who you're supposed to be. You're a person who then takes control of everything in life because you daren't just let yourself walk in freedom you'll only be rejected again in the ministry uh, pastoral ministry that i've been involved in in all these years uh, i sort of i sort of perhaps got a bit of a reputation for deliverance ministry Um, i didn't plan that and organize it it just happened that way i suppose i received deliverance and then people came to me and um, I said well perhaps you've got the similar problems that I had that the thing was spiritual and, and I would pray for them and they would get delivered so I sort of stumbled into the whole thing really and I found again and again and again more people came to me and came to me and constantly I would be brought back to this thing of they're suffering from deliverance, uh, from, from rejection and they probably need some deliverance in this area of their lives. I saw, I saw deliverance not as a cure-all, and it, it, didn't, it didn't necessarily cure the person of rejection, but what it does, it, it deals with a deep wound, or it, it, it reveals truth to the person about why they are like they are. And by the removal of that spirit from their lives, they have a chance to heal and to be restored and to grow. My feelings are, without the deliverance, they're never going to be healed. I remember Derek Prince sharing a testimony where he was an orderly in a hospital in the war and uh, there was a wound that he was dressing as an orderly and he was bandaging it up and the the doctor called out, he said, what are you doing Prince? He said, oh I'm just... um, bandaging this wound and he said stop a minute and he went over to him and he got one of these prod things and he he pulled the bullet out of his arm and uh, of course <laughs> the man was in a lot of agony he said now you can bandage him up Prince you see I, I saw deliverance as that it was the removal of the bullet and of course it needed then all the ministry and the love and and the Word of God and everything else but without taking the bullet there was no chance of that man ever ever being healed of that wound and so I just I just fell into this and discovered a lot of people need deliverance Re- rejection then it violates the whole person. Uh, The whole being is is affected by it. We've heard one or two of these testimonies this evening. As they grew up, they struggled just about with everything. Their outlook on life, their manner, their confidence, their joy, their peace. Everything, even their appearance, was affected by this spirit that dominated their lives. Evil spirits do enter people's lives. For people to say, no, they don't. It's not possible for a Christian to be demonized, is you're cutting yourself off from the ministry that God wants to give you. And you will carry that bullet in you until the day you die if that's the case. Maybe the the spirit first oppresses the child, just just bears down on that child, just wears the child out. Uh, constantly calling names we heard about, or or constantly being the butt of a joke, or, or failing in certain things. And because it builds and builds in you until you're just wounded. And you just need to be delivered of something that's gone really deep into your life. The spirits just can't enter into us. There has to be open doors. It's a bit like what You know, God said to Cain, something's crouching at the door of your life. Unless you deal with this, this thing is going to break in now. Deal with it. Deal with it because as little children, you can't deal with it. You want to deal with it. Your parents should be there protecting you and helping you, but they might be the root cause of the wounding and more wounding. And of course, we know so much of how children are abused growing up in this world of ours. Rejection itself then becomes the door to let these things in. Rejection, I found, affects all sorts of people. Whatever personality they've got, even the outgoing, as you look, there's rejection there. The quiet person, there's rejection there. They might have different reactions to life, but it's all there. So there were these three roots that I discovered. The root of rebellion, the root of self-rejection, and the root of the fear of rejection. I found them to be three different roots, and I found there were spirits that had corresponding names. I found another spirit as well when I was ministering to people, that of the orphan spirit. Um, or a spirit of abandonment. Sometimes you're praying about something and an idea would just pop into your head about abandonment. And just by saying the word spirit of abandonment, all of a sudden there's just this reaction within someone. It just, you just hit it for some reason. I don't know why it has to be named. You think, well, if you're praying in the power of the Spirit, what does it matter what name it has? But for some reason it does. And as you come straight at it head-on, this thing reacts within the person. And sometimes the Holy Spirit will give you the exact name of the Spirit that describes what's gone on in this person's life. These spirits of uh, abandonment and uh, the orphan spirit, they enter a child very early in life. They grow up with a sense of being abandoned. It's just obvious. Or being orphaned, they have no real parent. They're lacking something. find it very difficult to love God or to relate to God. I found that rejected people have the fear of further rejection. So they seek to control situations. But then they've just opened another door to a controlling spirit. They call it a spirit of Jezebel because Jezebel was a witch and she was a very controlling person. And so you move from one to another and so you're thinking, I know how to handle this. I won't lose control of this. And you've just opened the door to something else. Often with rejection in early years, the child will go within itself just it doesn't want to be noticed or seen, especially children who've been abused they just they just don't want to be seen to hide away. They get locked into their emotions they can 't express themselves they don't think anyone cares anyway but in in older life, this comes out in childishness or the way they're uh, over emotional to Things that happen in their life, like a child might be over-emotional. The fruit of rejection. We've been speaking about the roots, and of course it bears fruit. All roots bear fruit. It's easy to identify the fruit. You just have to take time with people. Listen to people, have a heart of compassion, listen to the words that they're saying, because they will, the Spirit will speak through them, you see. The wound is so deep, it affects everything in their lives. As you listen to their words, or the fact they can't even express themselves, or they're so fearful, as we listen, we'll be able to detect the root of what is there. There are reactions. There's the the outward visible, external expression of reaction. And there's the hidden, the internal ones. People who rebel and push out and react, they don't know they're doing it. They just see it as part of who they are. People who draw back. They might think, oh, it's because of this, but it's who I am. That has made me who I am. And this is who I've got to be. (laughs) You can live your whole life and not be you. Isn't that weird? Just, God made you see to be something, to live in a certain way, but you could live your whole life and, and not be like that. It's just, it's terrible. I'm gonna finish this session with uh, an email that I received, because I did invite them, and if you want to send one in, please do. Uh, This is uh, somebody, I can give his name, it's Richard. He gave me permission to do that. And uh, it's how he felt about the church today. As one who studies the Bible, he said, there are some scriptures that cannot be ignored When others are invited to an event and you are not even notified about it, what could the reason be? Does one simply ignore it, forget about it and get on with life? Or is there a deeper issue here? Why did no one, sorry, uh, why did no one uh, let me know? that this event had begun. Why did no one tell me about the Christmas party? I'd have loved to come to it. Was it an oversight? Was it an error? Or is there something deeper? Did someone actually forget to pass on a message? Or is there a more valid reason for not being told about something? I, for one, I begin to ask many questions. I go back to the scriptures, Proverbs 20 and 19. A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks too much. Is that my problem? Is that why I wasn't invited? Is that why people don't talk to me? Or Proverbs 23, 6. Do not eat the food of a stingy man. Do not crave his delicacies. Could that apply to me? The reason I wasn't invited? Or 2 Thessalonians 3.14 If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Are people trying to shame me? Do people do this to me? because there's something wrong with me. Did one of these verses apply to me? Is there something in my life that needs to change? Or was it just simply an oversight? I'd like to know, am I the cause of the problem? If so, let me apologise. Or have God's people become so used to making promises and forgetting to keep them that it's become an accepted way of life these days? We say, I'll let you know when we start again in the new year, and they forget what they said, and they never follow through. Rejection is an important matter that really does need to be addressed. In many people's lives. It's becoming an increasing challenge for more and more people. Thank you for this invaluable module. As a church we have an awesome responsibility to treat everyone that we come into contact with as though they had this massive massive wound. Of rejection in their lives. Now they haven't, but it might be a good idea to treat people as though they did. Just be more loving and caring. Don't add to their problems, but be the source of relief and deliverance for them. God bless you.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come on back next week for another lesson in the rejection module. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can now do so by going onto our website where you can make a secure online donation at ariseministry.org.uk. And don't forget you can also follow us on social media at ariseministryuk. Arise ministry, a living legacy.